Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Radio at AOL.com slash podcasting. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 188 for March 19th, 2009. Listener feedback number 62. Security Now is brought to you by IWantToBeANerd.com. The Nerds on Site team of IT professionals is looking for nerds with all competencies and skills. Go to www.IWantToBeANerd.com and register for a nerds-only meeting today. And by GoToAssist Express, an easy way to provide instant tech support to your customers, clients, family, or friends. Be a tech support hero with GoToAssist. For a free 30-day trial, go to GoToAssist.com slash security. It's time for Security Now with Steve Gibson, the show that talks about privacy, security, everything you need to know to stay safe online, and does it with no apology whatsoever in the absolutely most geeky way possible. <laughs> Steve Gibson's here. GSC. Yeah, we do. Have, we, I, I see as I'm running through the Q&A sometimes that people will say, well, I had to read the transcripts on that one three times before I really knew what you're talking about, but uh, now I do. So, yeah. well, it's uh, I think that it's you know, there's plenty of places you can read kind of fluff and generalized stuff about this stuff, but there's not that many places where you can get the real goods, especially not that many people like you who can really d- dig into it, understand it, and then deliver it. So, well, and yeah, I don't really have a choice. I mean, I I, tr- <laughs> I truly love this stuff, and I get excited about it, and it's, it's the details that are really interesting. It's so, just the way I'm made, says Steve Gibson. I don't have a choice. <laughs> well, what are so we talking about today? We got a, this is a Q and A episode. Okay, yet. There's so much other stuff that I want that I need to talk about that uh, I only put together 10 questions rather than our normal dozen. And we may not even get to all of those. So I put the good ones at the front because, you know, so in other words, this show is going to go down straight downhill. (laughs) Listen now, because the rest of it was hard because there were lots of really good questions. So let's just try to move through it quickly. And so we can get to everything, but there, there's, a, there's a lot that I want to share with our listeners uh, that happened this week in, in the week, in the intervening week since we last spoke to our listeners. And, uh, and we got, you know, great Q&A stuff too. some. Well, PayPal seems to be a never ending theme. And I see uh, we have the PayPal horror story of the uh, oh, week. This one, Leo, <laughs> I, I'm just you're not even the fact. Well, you ought to read it first when I'm talking about other stuff so you can prepare yourself. Is for that what's bad? Coming. My jaw's oh, going to drop. It is over the top horror. Oh, I it's like just, that, though. I like being surprised because you can hear me catch my breath. Go. <gasps> <okay. Okay. laughs> what? Oh, my God. Oh, it's this is just unbelievable. Also, a battery breakthrough from MIT. I'm very excited to hear about this. I don't know what you're going to say because I haven't you before. Just before we started, Steve said, have you heard? heard and i said no so i we're gonna find out about that before we do though brand new sponsor i want to welcome to the show uh and uh it's re- it's not exactly brand new you know about citrix we we've talked about them all the time go to meeting go to my pc they have a product that's based on the same remote access platform that they do in the corporate environment called go to assist and it's used for corporate it departments 
And they want to tell you about a new version of this that is, I think it's new, that's designed for you to use with your family, with your clients, your customers, your friends. You know, if you listen to this show, you're clearly the tech guru in your circle. Go to my assist is exactly the product you've been looking for. You could be a tech support hero, provide tech support and help online. You know, it's easy for them to set it up. It's easy for you to set it up. Here's an interesting thing. You could take control of their computer, but and I don't know of other products that let you do this. They can also take control of your computer, of course, with your permission. So you can go back and forth. You could use it for training. You could say, okay, let me show you. Then you take control. Very interesting. You don't have to be physically present to fix a technical problem. Even when the person you're helping is not home, you could set it up to do this. You start your sessions with just one click. Like Citrix, no, no router issues. It does NAT traversal. Um, you can do instant email invitations saying I'm here to help or vice versa works on both PCs and Macs. You share your screen, they can share theirs. So you can, again, two-way screen sharing. I think that's unique in these things. An integrated live chat, which is always very helpful. You can be on the phone, of course, but it's nice to be able to say, okay, here's what I'm going to do in chat. Uh, Very, really cool stuff. I want to start using it all the time. And by the way, I should, I don't need to say this, but on security now, I know you care. As with all Citrix products, it's 128-bit encrypted end-to-end. So there's never an issue with security using, you know, well-known SSL technology. Free customer service available 24-7. I want you to try it free for 30 days. If you've got a friend or a relative with a problem, just sign up now. Get the 30-day trial. Go to gotoassist.com slash security. Gotoassist.com slash security we're just going to do the short version of that and you could try it free for 30 days support max support pcs it has file transfer too so if they need a driver and you've got it or here's a great example they've got uh, antivirus 2009 you've got malware bytes the latest version you normally you'd say okay go download it no you just transfer it over you say okay i've got the file let me transfer it over and then you run it and then you clean their system remotely Go to assist, G-O-T-O-A-S-S-I-S-T dot com slash security. We thank you for their support and welcome them to the Security Now family. All right, let's, let's start with uh, the tech stories because there's a lot of them, tech news, <clears throat> a rabbit, well, we that have, kind of thing. Yeah, we do have, we have security news uh, and uh, a bunch of stuff. Great. So um, we were talking, we've, we've mentioned several times in the past about the problems with uh, security vulnerabilities in Adobe Reader. And some people indicated that, well, just switch over to Foxit. Oops. Yeah. What? Turns out no? that Foxit has, the Foxit Reader has multiple security vulnerabilities, which they have just acknowledged and fixed. Um, well, now, especially- last week we, we, we talked about this, and you mentioned there was a patch. Is this over and above what you mentioned last week? Well, what I had heard last week was just sort of some rumblings that maybe switching to Foxit wasn't going to what wasn't going to fix you up any better. That, that that you know either the same problems or different problems might be present. It turns out that these are different, right? Um, but these are remote execution code problems, um, you know, that involve specially crafted PDFs. Which and, uh, turns out Foxit has a huge following. Um, oh yeah, I love it. I think it's twenty million mm-hmm. copies are in use now. Mm-hmm. 
So, you know, so it represents enough of a target that you could imagine bad guys saying, well, let's, you know, send some PDFs off, PDF files, small ones off in and in, uh, in a spam mailings. And we're going to we're going to catch some people. Um, so uh, and, and essentially the the exploits are known proof of um, concept code is out on the Internet and available. So. It's, you know, it's probably not even a matter of time before this thing gets exploited. So I wanted to just notify any Foxit users to go back to the Foxit mothership and and update their copies or make sure that they are currently using the most recent version because there has been just in the last week an update to fix uh, a number of of remote code execution exploits, stack-based buffer overflow. I mean, the, the traditional problem. Um, you know, that really all software really seems to have when it isn't written with this, this, you know, an absolute focus on security as, you know, one of the main things. And you can imagine that, you know, the Foxit guys, like all other programmers, are more focused on getting it to work and getting their particular thing going in it than they are in absolutely thinking about every possible way it can be exploited. And, you know, as a developer myself, I can vouch for the fact that it's very difficult to get your head into that mode to be, I mean, it's, it's coming at your software from a direction that you fundamentally don't, you, that you're fundamentally resistant to. So, I mean, the, 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 the bad guys have an advantage because they have no stake in this thing operating correctly. Right. Their stake is in finding where it doesn't. Right. And so it's it's just a, it's it's very hard to make this um you know to make code bulletproof which is why you know week after week we kite we keep running across one program or another that's got a problem. I I'm looking I think this is the update that I mentioned last week which is Foxit 3 build 1506. Yes. So okay. if you get the latest Foxit you're don't freak out there's not been another these are the three flaws the buffer overflow flaws we yep. I met. Yeah, okay. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned that last week? I did, but it was in peripheral. Okay. It was peripherally that, that they had. Remember, I said they had problems. They fixed those problems with Build Three. They say it's uh, not the same. What was it? Big, big JPEG issue that, uh, that uh, the Adobe people had. Right, it's not the same. Although they did have a, a big JPEG issue, but right. it was different Dif- from the different Adobe one. Problem. Yep, because <laughs> they use yep. their own libraries. They don't use the Microsoft or the Adobe libraries. Meanwhile, in security news, uh, the BBC did a rather controversial thing that uh, upset a lot of security uh, analysts and specialists. Uh, a, a guy named Spencer Kelly that uh, does um, security-related work for the BBC uh, went on to an Internet chat room and purchased, on behalf of the BBC, a 22,000 PC botnet. Oh, my goodness. For the purpose of using the botnet to actually do bad things. What? Well, I mean, not against people. For example, they set up two email accounts, a Hotmail and a Gmail account, and they and he used the botnet to send spam through the botnet, from the botnet to those two email accounts. Oh, just so as they a were, test. They were Yes, they were spamming themselves. He also used the botnet to to aim a denial of a service attack at a cooperating security firm that confirmed that yes, you know, 22,000 machines wow. it felt like were were attacking them. Wow. Um then 
when all this was done, they, you know, they died. They, they, they recorded it, made the TV show and, and everything. They changed the screensaver of those 22,000 machines to, to alert. Hello, the, this is the, the BBC. You've got a problem. <laughs> what a surprise. Oh, my goodness. They changed the screensaver to, to turning it into an alert that would let them know that their machine was infected with a malicious agent, which I don't I mean, I didn't see what the alert said, but presumably, you know, they were saying this is the BBC. Uh, we don't know where you are on the planet because, of course, they don't. These are 22,000 machines located anywhere that that they had control of. As a consequence of purchasing this botnet from a chat Did room. they say how much they paid for the thing? Uh, I didn't see a price, but, oh, but they called mention. it an inexpensive botnet uh, because well, it's, it's not small. that big. It's yeah. Like, oh, 22,000. Nothing. Machines. What can you do with that. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> and then after changing everybody's screensaver to this warning notice, they shut the botnet down. They used the botnet to re- to remove itself, essentially, well, to shut it down, Good. having taken control of it. And this notice helped, you know, aimed people at some help that would tell them how to disinfect their machines from this. The problem is that it violates all kinds of laws. Right. It's I illegal mean, to do what they did. Yes, it's yeah. illegal. I mean, they modified right. without permission the settings and operation of these 22,000 machines, even though their intentions were good right. their Hopefully the result was good. You cannot do that. Right. Even, you know, even if you're Robin Hood, um, it's just, you know, not OK. So it's caused a big kerfuffle. And and they say, well, we talked to our attorneys first. We would never have done this if we hadn't talked to our attorneys first. And, you know, but people who are in the know of the of such things, you know, in terms of of where this fall says eh, not so good. Um, so well, was I mean, it's pretty obvious it's not so good. You'd think they yeah. would. I mean, forget the attorneys. Uh, what about the ethics of it? You know, I mean, it's yeah. You're modifying somebody's computer. Now, admittedly, they ne- it needs to be modified, but we've seen this happen before. We've seen kids write viruses that delete other viruses. Like antivirus yeah. viruses. Yeah, and that's yes. never a good idea. Don't Well, it's just not okay. Yeah. You know, it's, it's the old two wrongs don't make a right, even right. if your wrong is intended to be for good. I mean, right. what if it did something bad? What if by mistake right. they had, you know, hurt these? So, I mean, you, you know, you really are opening yourself to some liability, and I wouldn't be at all surprised if... Given the grayness of this, if somewhere among those 22,000 people, somebody was really upset by by what the BBC did to their machine without their permission, even, I mean, it, they, you know, they would feel the BBC was in my machine, gained yeah. access to my machine and made some change. You know, I, I, it's you know, it, you it would have almost have made more sense, frankly, for them not to acknowledge that they had used a bot in anyone's machine to do this if they were determined to do it uh, it really does seem to me like well you know again their heart was in the right place but oh boy are you asking for trouble yeah. and uh, I'll, I'll keep a track on keep an eye on the story to see whether in fact anything you know further is done it would, it would be sad if the bbc were hurt but that's the nature of lit, you know litigation and well the, uh, the other side of this is everybody knows these exist everybody knows how they operate um, they have, you know, they it really is almost a little sensationalistic. It's not, you don't need, need to do that. 
I guess well to prove that's the point, a very good point. So easy to you know, buy. What, what what did they achieve by demonstrating right, that right. you know they got they maybe they 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 demonstrated that anyone in a chat room can buy one of right. these and do the following things. Right. So yeah, I guess know, I so. guess that's not such a bad thing to let yeah. people know. Um, today I am announcing the result. I don't know how much of the of the email dialogue you saw back and forth with myself and the other judges of the Yuba King Award. Um, that was in, that was in the last couple of days. Um, you may remember that, that Yubico, the makers of the YubiKey, um, in preparation for the RSA conference coming up next month in April of 2009, have, uh, they wanted to, uh, create an awards process to encourage people to do things with the YubiKey and that the, all the people in their wiki um, and there were a couple of hundred people in the wiki and then a panel of three judges of of whom I am one or of which I am one uh, would also have a vote. Well, as it turns out, the the top two wiki voted entries were both by companies who had purchased a whole bunch of YubiKeys. And they use their YubiKey inventory to vote for themselves. Oh. <laughs> oh. So, so there were, like, it was ridiculously lopsided. You know what I mean? There was the only, the only, the only solutions that got, like, a whole ton of votes were the two companies that had purchased a gob of YubiKeys. And, you know, you, and, and the way the voting worked, you had a, you, you, the YubiKey authenticated you. So there's no way to vote twice. Unless you had a whole you know, gob of YubiKeys, a whole gob of YubiKeys, oh, and just stuck them in one after the other and touched the little button and voted for yourself. So, not surprisingly, those companies thought that their applications of the YubiKey were better than anybody else's, and they were there to stand behind that belief oh, that's so by funny. inserting all their YubiKeys and voting for themselves. So, uh, we discounted all of that, of course, because that really wasn't re- representative of of what seemed good. There are three winners sort of in different categories. And one of them is so cool. I mean, if nothing else came out of this, other than all of our listeners finding out about this one, then it's been worth everything. So the first is a, a really interesting sort of cloud based app uh, or system called Maventa, M A V E N T A. Um, what they've done is they're working to essentially come up with a secure electronic invoicing system. They make the point that still today, in this day and age, despite the fact that we have the net and everybody's plugged in and chatting and talking and sending email all over, all over the place, the process of invoicing is still paper. That is, invoicers print out their you know, they're um, payables and put them in envelopes and lick them and put them in the mail and they trundle across the world wherever they're going. And then they're received and th- they're opened up and and logged into payables systems where then these things get, you know, batched and checks are written and, and that's sent back. And so this company says, OK, this is this is dumb now that we're not doing e-invoicing. And there's, of course, lots of problems. I mean, you need to do this securely. One of the things you need 
is to be able to sign these invoices and you really need good authentication. So the way Maventa is using the YubiKey is that a company is able to submit electronic invoices to them and they go there in a batch. Then you visit their website and view all of the the invoices that you're sending out and agree that that's all correct. And then you use the YubiKey to, you know, as you know, you, you are the authenticated um, uh, invoicer for your, for your organization. So you use the YubiKey for that one batch in order to sign them, authenticating them. And then Maventa turns around and forwards these electronically to the recipients of, of the invoices. So anyway, it's a, it's a, a typical state of the art. This is how, you know, this is like what the future is going to be where we use multi-factor authentication, strong authentication provided in this case by the YubiKey, you know, an inexpensive, lightweight, easy to use, you know, deployable token to provide, you know, that kind of, you know, required authentication that a system like this needs because you certainly don't want, you know, any major breaches in a system like this and authentication of what you're, uh, of these transactions is, is required. Um, the second winner is a company called Collective Software, who has essentially come up with a, a multi-armed authentication solution for sort of, sort of for enterprise class Windows networks. And there's like a bazillion of them. So any company, this thing integrates with Active Directory for companies that are using Active Directory. It's called AuthLite, A-U-T-H-L-I-T-E. And if anyone, and they grab that domain, which redirects to their, their to the proper AuthLite page on their software site. So if you just put www.authlite.com, that'll bounce you over to Collective Software's page. And um, I've looked through it. It looks very nice. I mean, essentially, they've got the whole Windows logon, Windows authentication, remote network, VPN authentication, all, you know, the whole package associated w- with Windows enterprise class networks um, implemented with the YubiKey as, as the, you know, multi-factor token for, for logon. Um, and it's, so it's, you know, a soup to nuts solution, a, a company that wanted to increase, that, that wanted to use the YubiKey for Windows authentication. Uh, they can do that now with this Authlight off solution. Okay. And the final winner of the YubiKey Award is, is a neat guy in um, Switzerland who, uh, it turns out, the company he works for was part of this, is, is in the same building. Coincidentally, Stina didn't even know this until she looked him up after the panel, the judges, uh, including myself yesterday, you know, went back and forth about a bunch of these password sort of solutions and decided, you know, this was the guy. I mean, his was... There are, uh, there's a bunch of honorable honorable mentions I'm going to run through real quickly about other password solutions that people may already be using, which are now YubiKey enabled. But this was such a cool solution that I lobbied hard for this. Um, the The product is well, it's not even a product; it's free. He calls it Key Genius. Um, and again, you put Key Genius into Google, and you'll find it. Um, the way it works is slick. 
um, you you create an add-on for your browser. Uh, so it uses a browser add-on, something that is running in your browser, watching you log in to sites. And um, you you essentially, you go to his server and you um, you create a, you, you tell his server what the password for any given site is that you want to log into. You don't tell, you don't, you don't have to create an account. You don't have to create an identity. You don't tell it what your username is, only what the password is for a given site. And you authenticate that then with the YubiKey. So, and then he does a real time, and this is in one time password mode, you know, the, the, the strongest mode of using the YubiKey. Then anytime in the future, when you're online and you're at that site, where you're being prompted for the password, you just touch your YubiKey. So what goes into the password field is not the password for the site, but the one-time password that will that'll never be that'll ne- that'll never be repeated by the YubiKey. That's typed into the password field. The the add-in that is running in your browser notices it sees you entering a yubikey looking password and so without you doing anything it goes it connects to his server and uses what you just entered to authenticate you because you've got that yubikey it looks up the matching password that you have you have logged into his site before and on the fly swaps it with what was with your YubiKey entry in the password for the proper password and then hits enter. So, so essentially what this means is that you can take your YubiKey with you anywhere. This is secure login, for example, in a, in a, even in an insecure cafe mode, because even if there were a keystroke logger, it would be logging the YubiKey keystrokes, which is just fine because it's never valid again, thanks to the YubiKey being one-time password. It would never see, the keystroke logger would not see the actual password because that's never typed at your keyboard. The add-on swaps it behind the scenes and then submits the login form. So it's just a... It's just a very clever, nice solution. It's free. Um, you know, the the caveats are that this is just, at this point, it's just some random guy that loved the YubiKey and wrote this app because, you know, and set up a server um, uh, just because he wanted to. So it's not clear that you can count on this always being up. I'm hoping that, you know, Bringing some attention to 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 him and this solution will, you know, maybe someone will come along and buy it from him and turn it into an industrial strength solution. I mean, it's just a it's a clever, simple, nice way of using the YubiKey in in a in a function which is which is inherently mobile. That is, you don't have to have any, you don't have to carry anything with you. Um, he's got a nice FAQ where he asks himself all the questions that that people who are worried about this in all the different ways you might be like, well, wait a minute. I, you know, I'm giving you all my passwords. And he says, well, true, 
except you're not giving me any of your user IDs. I don't know anything about you. I don't know your email address. I don't know your name. I know nothing. All I know is that this this one aspect of authentication, not the other. So there's you know there's there's no way that that he's able to to take advantage of that. Um, everything is encrypted. If you read the FAQ, it's clear that you know this guy understands security. He establishes an encrypted connection between your browser and his server. So all of that is secured. All of the all of the passwords are are stored encrypted at his end. And even if someone did get them, it doesn't help them because they don't know anything about what they're associated with. There's no knowledge of there's no association to you or to the sites where they would be used. So but but they're encrypted anyway. So it, it wouldn't uh you know they wouldn't be able to do anything with the information if they were able to get it. Anyway, it's neat. I uh, I I um I I played with it as did the other judges, and we agreed that uh, this guy deserves the Yuba King Award for having just created a, a nice, interesting new approach for using the key. Um, I also wanted to mention that the the product so many passwords dot com now is YubaKey enabled. LastPass is YubaKey enabled. KeyPass, which is a very popular uh, password management utility, is YubaKey enabled, as is Password Safe. So all of those were also entries because they are um, YubaKey capable. Um, they just, you know, I mean, they, they did sort of the normal thing you would expect with a YubaKey. So, you know, we wanted to acknowledge them, make sure people knew that they were able to use their YubaKeys with them, but didn't quite reach the level of, of something, you know, a new cool application that we thought was really clever. Um, I also wanted to mention that Joomla, Drupal, and Inano are all now also YubiKey enabled, you know, those, those content uh, management systems. Um, WordPress blog has a plugin. There's an Apache module now for using the YubiKey for uh, Apache server authentication. Cool. A Mac OS login Google Apps, you can now use the YubiKey for authenticating yourself uh, and just a bunch of other things. So overall, the, you know, the YubiKey is continuing to gain traction and uh, is, is finding homes all over the place. You deserve a lot of credit for that. I think if it weren't for you running into Stina at RSA a year ago, I don't know how YubiKey yeah. would be doing at this point. Have they made the move to the U.S. now? Are they, are they in the I US? don't know, actually, where they are. I have not kept track. Uh, mm-hmm. There's one last thing I want uh, – two last things I want to mention. One is that there was one really fun entry that I just wanted to mention because it was just great. It, the guy called it UB Home, uh, and, you know, as in UB Home, but um, – he uses the YubiKey as his door key. Um, we, he didn't win YubiKing award. <laughs> as his door key. <laughs> as his door key. Uh, it's over on the other side of the door from where the, where the handle is. He's just got like a, a USB extension cable, the head wow. of a USB extension cable poking out through, through the Oh, the that's hysterical. Foot. And so, he, you know, he plugs his YubiKey in. And then it little the little ring lights up, and he touches it, and and he's got, also got a speaker overhead, and it says, you know, welcome Howard or whoever his name. He says, uh, the door is now unlocked, and you have three new messages. <laughs> so he so, somehow tied his lock to a. Well, he yeah he has, he has a motorized lock. He got a motorized um, door lock, and those are available freely. You know, companies like like Safe House 
um, uh, sell those. So those are, you know, for, for whatever, like security or, or automated, you know, automated house, uh, sort of applications. And so there's a computer that, you know, is at the other end of the USB extension cable, which, you know, runs some software that authenticates his YubiKey and unlocks his front door. So it's, you know, it's clever, but it's not the sort of thing that everyone's going to go run out and do. So we wanted to give him an honorable mention um, a, as a submission. And uh, and he submitted a video that was really fun, too. Oh, how, how clever. That's so cool. Now the best news of all. Yes. Uh, they will be announcing next month. Uh, something that everybody who's using a YubiKey wants, and that is a split personality YubiKey, where a single key can be both one-time password and oh, static password. I, I do want that very much. Yes. Yeah. Because, yeah. so, I mean, it just makes so much sense. Um, and actually, it's more than that. It's actually a dual personality key where either personality can be any configuration of the YubiKey. And so the idea would be you touch the circle for one second and that engages the first personality. If you touch and hold it for three seconds, it engages the second personality. And so you could have two different static keys, two different one-time password keys you with different um, secret keys inside, so, you know, for whatever purpose, I'm not sure why you'd want to do that, but, but, well, for example, one reason is if you were, if you were using, um, a, a, a third party server for doing one time password authentication, yet you still wanted the public side for like using the Yubico one time password server, then you would need two different one time password solutions in a single key so they are going to be announcing you know doubling the functionality essentially of the yubikey um next month very cool okay so the big news from mit in the last week was a a um appeared in the letter section of of nature magazine announcing mit's uh, well, some two materials scientists, some chemists at MIT have come up with a major battery technology breakthrough. Um, th- what they essentially did was they, they have come up with a new, a technology for changing the surface crystallization in a standard an otherwise standard lithium ion cell, um, which where the surface is specially prepared um, to create a much more effectively a porous to lithium ion surface. The upshot of this is you can take existing lithium ion chemistry, which is well understood and, and well developed, you switch it to using this particular electrode preparation and you can now fully charge and discharge a lithium ion battery in a matter of seconds. What? Charge it, and it, discharge in, this is like those ultra capacitors that we were talking well, it, about. Exactly. In fact, in, in their paper they show the ways in which this technology is similar to ultra capacitors even though it's entirely different. I mean, for example, as we know, the ultracapacitor 
owes its potential for high energy storage by using really high operating voltages. Now, that's the controversial aspect of an ultracapacitor, and actually, it's it's a problem with its application. That is, if you, you know, we're talking about, what was it, 3,500, 35,000 volts of charge. Okay. Yeah. So you need to step up, you, you know, you need to step up your available charging source up to that level, right. and you need to step the, the, when you're using the capacitor's stored charge you need to step the voltage back down to you know five volts if you're going to be using this technology in a laptop so the beauty of of using existing lithium-ion battery technology is that we understand it it's mature fabrications in place and the charging and discharging you know it's operating at natural use voltages instead of something exotic how does it charge in nine seconds if it's the same voltage um, well, uh, voltage and current are different. Okay. So voltage is pressure and current is flow. Flow. It wouldn't need higher current, right? Well, and in fact, these guys, yeah, oh, yes. And in fact, you know, the current, the available current is the limiting factor. Ah. For example, you know, you could not, you cannot charge your plug-in hybrid vehicle in 10 seconds. Right. Because you need too many kilowatt hours of energy. Right. I mean, the, so... A, a vehicle with this battery technology could technically charge itself up in a few minutes, but you'd have to give it way more than household current. So what you can imagine is you can imagine the equivalent of a gas station, but now it's an electron station right. where, you a know, tank. you literally you a tank to fill. Well, well, you, you literally drive your car up when it's near empty. <laughs> you have some serious industrial type connector which you know looks like some mega watt plug you plug it in and this thing dumps a huge amperage of current into your car and in a matter of of a minute just like you're filling your tank now this thing could recharge your car's next generation lithium-ion battery that's that's really amazing well what about a laptop would could you i guess you couldn't could you no, use no, no. It on a laptop? Uh, absolutely. I mean, now we're probably we're probably two or three years away from this getting Good, out into the market. Because I just bought a laptop. I don't want to buy a new one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're probably two or three years away because I mean, now the two companies have two producers have already licensed the technology from MIT. So I mean, everyone gets it that this is a breakthrough. I mean, you know, the the days of charging up your cell phone or your PDA or your Kindle. You know, overnight, that's going to be gone in a few years. And wow. I, I can imagine somebody four years from now listening to this podcast is like, what? It's you had you, you guys used to have to do that. That's crazy. You know, it's, this is uh, this so, could be a huge breakthrough. So this and what I love about this, as opposed to ultra capacitors, is it works with existing battery technology. Yes. How much yes. of a change is it? Do they change how they manufacture them? Um, well, yes, it is. It, it's a again, it the. This is all in the lab, and these guys they talk in this paper. I, I, none of the, the, the this is in the press a lot this week, but all the stuff in the press is just sort of your top level surface junk, and it didn't really talk about how this works. So I bought a PDF from Nature um, of their paper, which is deep in chemistry and materials science, and it talks about how they. 
they they you know what they make this of that that this is a lithium iron phosphate electrode mm. which they they heat to 600 degrees for some length of time then they raise it to 900 degrees and they do this and that and and they understand being materials guys that what they're doing is they're they're changing the surface the crystal the crystalline surface structure at the nano level so that it is far more permeable to ions and it's the ionic permeability of of the electrodes which have traditionally limited the rate at which you can charge and discharge lithium um, ion cells so, and they've got charts and diagrams and um, they show for example they, they 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 state in their paper that the typical power rate okay so that's that's not the total amount of energy, but the but the but the power rate, the the rate at which you're able to take power out of a lithium ion cell, the traditional lithium ion cell is between 0.5 and 2 kilowatts per kilogram. So, so think of it between half and two kilowatts per kilogram in their test cells using their modified lithium ion phosphate electrode, they're able to get 170 kilowatts per kilogram. So from 2 to 170. Wow. So it's orders of magnitude, and that was a full discharge of the battery. They, they brought they charged the battery up, topped it off, just like you do any lithium ion battery, although much much more quickly, and that they discharged it fully in nine seconds. So they dumped all of the battery power out in nine seconds. So, I mean, what this means, as you say, you asked for laptops, we're back again to plugging it in and counting, you know, maybe to 10 or maybe to 100. Gosh, but I mean, right. No, no more hours uh, required to charge. See, right but now, now well, we would know, need a special charging station, though, right? I mean, again, we need extra current to flow that much, or maybe not. Is a battery, a laptop battery, that much current? And, and that's my point, I- exactly. Is that we're not talking about not a, filling up like a, a car, car battery. Right, we're right. filling up a laptop battery. So, so you could do so, it on your standard. Whatever well, it, it is, will. It, it will. You. It will be different charging technology. So will it is. It's. I mean, it's not like we're going to be able to get new batteries and stick them in our old laptops so because that won't happen it'll be the next generation of laptop will it will work only with these next generation batteries and so when you plug when you plug your laptop adapter into the wall okay the house lights will dim a little bit <laughs> that's not good <laughs> but but only but only for 30 nine seconds for, nine seconds yeah it, you know it'd be like running your microwave where right. where the, you know you can sort of ooh wow there's a second some power out of that but but in wow. 30 seconds your hamburger is hot now this, this would case, also increase the capacity right we should be able to get much longer life out of these right i don't think that's the case. It's not okay. Um, I, it, it's because it's still using, and they, they they don't directly address this in their paper. And if it did increase the capacity, they certainly would have addressed it. Okay. So it, because it is it is using standard lithium ion technology, they just solved the rate at which you can charge and discharge. Now the other reason that's important is that well, first of all, it means that that you 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 solve the problem of 
recharging, given that we actually would create electrical recharging stations the way we have gas stations now. But say that we say that we stayed with a hybrid model. The problem with traditional hybrid technology, where you've got a gas engine, you know, an internal combustion engine, is that that there are better ways to convert fuel, gasoline, to electricity than an internal combustion engine hooked to a generator. What you really want is an external combustion engine, and that's called a turbine. Ah. It turns out that 17 years ago, Ben Rosen, who is a very famous um, venture capitalist, he was the, the seed money behind Lotus and Compaq and a number of other tech startups back in, in that era. Um, he decided he wanted to create a, a, a powertrain for a, a hybrid powertrain for cars. So he needed a way of converting uh, he needed two things, just like we do in hybrids now, a way of converting gasoline to electricity and a way of storing the electricity. His solution for converting gasoline to electricity was far more efficient than ours is today because he used a, he used a microturbine generator, which had a one single moving part, which was suspended with an air bearing and spun at 96,000 RPM. And when and so the beauty of this is that you're able you, you spin this turbine up, you feed it gasoline or kerosene or who knows what it takes, but you know, something seen. Um, out comes energy with an extremely efficient conversion, much more so than we get with an internal combustion engine driving a generator. Now the problem is you've got far more energy than a battery can accept, a ba- because I mean traditional batteries, than lead acid or lithium ion. So you've got too much current. So he said, okay, we can't use batteries because we, the idea is we're going to run this turbine on a short du- du- on a short duty cycle to recharge something that is able to accept that much energy in a short time. Then we shut the turbine down. So instead of running like a traditional engine for a long period of time at a relatively low efficiency. The idea is you run it for a much shorter period of time, so your gas mileage is much higher. What he, what this guy Ben and his team came up with for storing the energy um, turned out itself to be controversial because he was using a a magnetically suspended flywheel which spun friction free in a vacuum at 55,000 RPM. Now, it was cool because you could spin this flywheel up. That is, a flywheel would accept the energy from the microturbine during the short time it was running, spin it up, essentially giving you, um, you know, storage of energy in a mechanical form, and then it would work as a generator dumping its energy into the wheel motors, just as we have with contemporary um, electric hybrid vehicles. The problem is you don't ever want to be in a car accident where you've got a flywheel spinning at 55,000 RPM um, a few inches away from your legs no. <laughs> or, or the, the small of your back or, or anywhere near you. Um, and so 
you know, I mean, they understood that. They went to great lengths to make this thing safe, to wrap this thing in shock harnesses. And, and I mean, literally, I'm sure there's like a, 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 a heavy firewall between you and the flywheel. But, you know, that was the means of storing energy. Um, they, they ended up obviously not producing cars. They made one. They made a prototype, and then the darn thing worked just like they thought. I mean, they magnetically suspended flywheels. That ended up spinning off into a separate company, which today spins magnetically levitated flywheels as a replacement for wow. for lead-acid traditional uh, UPS, uh, uninterruptible power supply systems for, for data centers. And that turbine technology, there's a company called Capstone, which they spun off, which makes micro-turbines for for all kinds of applications. So they, these things never went together in that way. But but now that we've got this kind of lithium ion technology, which is can be recharged in a literally as I would say in a matter of seconds, but we can't we can't source that much energy to it. But now that we've got it, something like a micro turbine based hybrid suddenly makes a lot of sense because the turbine spins up, does a much more efficient conversion of gasoline to le- to electricity, brings the lithium ion battery back to full charge, and then shuts itself down. That is so cool. You know, we just bought a hybrid uh, car, uh, Jennifer and I, because she she wanted a big car, and the only way I could justify it it's a it's a Toyota um, Highlander is is with a hybrid. But so those are using regenerative technologies. Do they not use flywheels anymore? Which the the hybrids current hybrids out there oh never did use flywheels oh I thought it, it was it, okay no it was just an idea that that Ben had and in fact that's what again it is a good way to other, store uh, energy of course you know oh yeah I mean and and, and we we've, we've we've talked about electrostatic in the form of a of an auto based supercapacitor and we talked about right. you know chemical in the right. form of a battery right. and now mechanical in the form of a flywheel but it looks like I mean this is this is really interesting because the battery runs at useful voltages. Apparently, some of the electric cars are not very quick off the line because it is difficult to pull the kind of energy out of an existing lithium ion that you that you would like to in order to really accelerate well. Well, that problem is gone now, too. Wow. So we're talking about cars with tremendous acceleration, wow. which are able to dump their their mechanical energy back into the battery as quickly as they as they need to when they're braking. So they'll they'll use regenerative braking and that are able to accept power either from a highly efficient turbine um, using external combustion technology or from a you know, I mean maybe you could charge it in, in your garage if you can provide enough power for that to make sense. Otherwise, there'll be some sort of universal, you know, high current power plug, and we may see electric charging stations in the future. Very, very cool. But it's big news that I wanted yeah. to share with everybody. Well, really timely. I mean, energy news. Uh, it's That's so yep. exciting. Yeah. Yep. And just in the nick of time. And it's interesting, <laughs> yeah. too, how, you know, we it's back in 2002, I found a paper there where they were talking about um, lithium ion phosphate as the as having its conductivity dramatically increased and and literally how this could really make sense for batteries and be a breakthrough it took took 7 years yeah. from that from that knowledge being in place and guys in the materials labs working out okay how do we actually solve the problems mm-hmm. and and so 
it, it, oh, the other thing I forgot to mention is it looks like this also solves the cycle life problem. Lithium ion suffers from both a shelf storage life limitation right. where literally the chemistry gets stale. Even if you're not using it, it's aging. And then also a maximum cycle life of on the order of 350 to 500 cycles. I know that Apple is is bragging about a new technology that they have in their le- latest laptops it's supposed to be a thousand cycles yeah, so that yeah, dem- yeah right that demonstrates that yeah <laughs> we'll see <laughs> that, that demonstrates that there's some awareness of that it looks yeah. like in their initial work that there is that this solves the cycle life problem too so i mean we're, we're basically talking three or four years from now i expect you know this this era of having to charge our little portable things for almost as long as it takes us to use them, wow. that's gone. It, we're going to f- really change that duty cycle. Well, you know, you remember I, you talked about that, uh, that um, uh, screwdriver that charges in 30 seconds. I, I finally got it, and it does indeed work. It does charge in 30 seconds. And it, that's a supercapacitor-based screwdriver. Yeah, it's very yep. cool. So That's uh, neat. Yeah, I, I, it's not the greatest screwdriver. I don't know if it's because of the supercapacitor. It's the barrel is kind of big. It's The ergonomics are not great. Uh, but uh, charges in 30 seconds, and it does, and it has a good lifetime, lots of torque. It's a nice design. Well, it's got an infinite lifetime, yeah. technically. technically. I mean, there's, yeah, nothing we'll to, yeah, there's nothing to die electrochemically in there, so it's neat. I mean, yeah. so we are seeing supercapacitors happening. It looks like the supercapacitor now is going to have a run for its money with this next generation of lithium-ion technology. Awesome. I do not have a Spinrite testimonial. What the heck? I have an amazingly cool tip. Oh, good. Uh, Dave Jones in Birmingham, Alabama, says he got Spinrite to boot over PXE. Uh, PXE, okay. I have... Which is that is network boot. Yeah. And it's built into all BIOSes now and has been for some time. So he wrote, he said, Steve, I thought you might get a kick out of this. I just bought the four licenses to get a corporate site license of Spinrite for our firm. We've now successfully gotten Spinrite to work over a PXE network boot. It involved taking the fdboot.img floppy image from FreeDOS and merging Spinrite XE into it. We then placed a call to it in FreeDOS's autoexec and put the .img file in our PXE menu. To my great pleasure, it booted straight away. That's cool. We, we can now run Spinrite on any computer in our firm, almost 100 machines, directly from the network without lugging any disks or CDs around the office. I hope to put up a full tutorial on how to get this working on my blog, and I'll send you a link when I do. Thanks, as always, for such a great product, being an assembly programmer myself. I truly appreciate the hundreds of hours of careful programming that Spinrite represents. Regards, Dave Jones, IT manager. That is really so, neat. Well, what's so neat about it is you've got a computer that won't boot. And so it's like, okay, cool. You you reboot, you go into the boot menu and into the PXE menu and say, run Spinrite. And it provide it 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 boots FreeDOS that, that is bound into Spinrite and then runs Spinrite. So, I mean, it's like it and then Spinrite goes to town and fix your disk. So it's just it's it's such a cool idea to run a data recovery tool that will that will solve, you know, 
boot problems, and it also makes it easier to ru- to run it in a preventative maintenance way. You just you know reboot your machine into spin right and let it run overnight, and uh, you know come back the next morning and go back to your normal work. So cool. I just that was really cool. That's I will. Cool. Uh, I I wrote back to Dave. I said, please, please, please. Um, you know, share the way you did this on your blog, and I will share it with our listeners when uh, when when he gets his blog up. I'm sure, you'd love to have that be part of the Spinrite uh, uh, instructions. That's really cool. Yeah. Hey, before are you ready for the questions, we got ten That's, of them. Yep, including good the ones. PayPal oh. shocking revolution. Oh, Leo, <laughs> I'm not kidding you. I haven't you, read it yet. I mean, this is just too good. Okay, good. Don't I haven't read it. it. I'm going to be surprised. Okay. I want to be surprised. Okay. <laughs> Before we do that, I want to mention our friends at Nerds on Site. They're a great group of uh, people who are helping uh, IT professionals, perhaps like yourself, make their business better. I I want you to go to a website. I want to be a nerd.com. You can all go there right now. Uh, nerds on Site is a team of IT professionals. They're looking for more nerds with competencies and skills in every possible area, uh, from Cisco to Oracle, PC to Mac. They especially love nerds who are focused on today's small and medium enterprises. That's really one of the last growing market sectors. Fix-it technicians, website designers, programmers, project managers, even sales trainers, security experts, antivirus gurus. If you're in the business of helping people in IT, Nerds on Site wants to help you. All the nerds are independent contractors. You're still in business for yourself. It's just not by yourself. You focus on what you love, not the burdens of running a business, and you can tune your competencies with their University of Nerdology, 250 different uh, competencies, including systems, architecture, design, software development, full on-site IT departments, desktop support. Even uh, if you want to be an Astaro certified engineer, you can get the Astaro certification. It's all there, and it's such a great a bunch of people. You're going to want to know more about it, and it's easy to do. Just go to the website. I want to be a nerd. I want to be a nerd. Dot com. Nerds on site. You you might see them I, I, driving around in their nerd mobiles. <laughs> They're really cute little Volkswagens, customized Volkswagens. Um, if you're in IT and you want, uh, you know, particularly if you're in a business for yourself, you really uh, can use some help um, uh, marketing and, uh, and you know, here's a good example. You run into a problem you've never experienced before. You can, you can call another nerd. And it's so like you're a team now. It's really cool. I want to be a nerd.com. We thank them for their supportive security now all right steve i'm ready to read uh <laughs> buckle your seat this comes from francis in london the horrifying paypal revelation of the week a brilliant show it does seem like it's weekly these days a brilliant show he says keep it up i'll try and keep this as brief as i can so you get because uh, you get so many of these i need to reset the password of a client's paypal account I used the forgotten password link on PayPal, received an email, clicked it. And, you know, this means that he's on the client's account because the email went to him. Right. Uh, And expected to be asked to verify my identity. PayPal said the link had expired, even though I had just requested the PayPal reset. So I tried again. Same thing. So I called customer service. They asked me to quote the last four digits of the bank account number. It's a client's corporate PayPal account. I didn't know it. So I said so. So the customer service guy said, why don't you guess? <laughs> he asks him to guess the number. Why don't you guess? Well, it's four digits. That's, that means there's, what, 10,000 uh, possibilities. Uh-huh. I said there was no way I could guess. He said, well, guess the first digit. I said I couldn't. He said, well, give it a try. So I guessed five. He said, higher. 
<laughs> so I guess eight. He said lower. I guess seven. He replied, correct. It's six. Now guess the second number. Strangely, I managed to guess all four numbers. He then sent me an email, which when I clicked, allowed me to change the password and all the basic security questions, etc. What? Oh, my goodness. What? Boy, to make things worse, the company used their main reception email account that more or less everyone has access to. And finally, thanks for the amazing spin ride. I used it a couple of times when I was in tech support. I really did get the company. It really did get the company out of a couple of tight scrapes. Sigh. Is that just guess? Too, hi, too... hi. You're high. Low, low. <laughs> oh, oh I don't. A, that's know the helpful. Number. Oh, that's okay. Just guess it. That's helpful. Uh, uh, text customer support. Uh, <laughs> well, and you know, I guess the 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 you know what would you do otherwise? It would probably cause this poor customer service representative more trouble if uh, if he just had to say no. I'm sorry. Or maybe he doesn't want you screaming at him. Or or who knows what would it what oh, it would bizarre. take. To end up doing this, and it's all. It's, this also indicates that the 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 support guy is seeing the number. It would be nicer if the system were designed so that he enters the number you type you you, you give, and then it either says yes or no to him. But in uh, you know, so obviously there isn't that aspect of privacy being maintained. He has the last four digits, so he's able to say, right. ah, yeah, "Guess a little, a little higher, bit higher, a little lower." Oh. Close. <laughs> oh goodness! <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, I don't. I, I, I don't I, understand how that could happen. That it sounds like a renegade uh, uh, customer service representative. I'd love to have an audio file of that conversation. That would be a keeper. Guess. Ian Cummings. I <laughs> know. <laughs> <laughs> Ian Cummings reports from Newbury, UK. Another UK uh, listener that PayPal may not be a lost cause. Hi, Stephen Lee. I love the shows. I'm behind in catching up, but listened to the other day to the story about only needing the last four digits of your credit card to get through PayPal security. This was another story, by the way. And remember, we we mentioned there that the problem is that the last four digits of your credit They're card is slip. so commonly used that it's it's, a, it's exposed everywhere. It's on right? the slip. It's the one thing they give you. Uh, well, it looks like they realized that wasn't a great idea, and I just saw this quote. Secure web pin for customer services. We're always looking for ways to improve your service and security, which is why after March 31st, 2009, this might be, by the way, British PayPal is a, may not be the same everywhere. Good point. Uh, we will only discuss your account when you provide a secure web pin. The last four digits of your bank account or card number can no longer be used to identify yourselves. When you want to call us... <laughs> Just log on to PayPal, go to the Contact Us page, and click on the Call Us link. On the next page, you'll find a six-digit pin, six pin code valid for one hour. Quote that when you call us. It's a small step, but in the right direction. Keep up the good work, guy. P.S. The reason I'm behind and catching up is Leo does so many good podcasts and has got me into Audible, and my journey to work isn't long enough. He has not enough time to listen to everything. Hey, but the problem with this is it wouldn't have helped our previous guy because he couldn't log in correct he was unable to log in so so this is a this is a customer support authentication loop yeah where you you log in you get a six-digit pin code then you use that to talk to a human being perfect um you know if you're able to log in to to you know and so what's that what that's doing is that's solving the, the you know the the um the social engineering 
problem of pretending to be somebody that you're not. And they're now saying, we're, after March 31st, you're not going to be able to use your credit card or your bank account, uh, account digits. You're going to have to you know, log in properly first and then use the PIN code, which is you know, a one-time password sort of you know, one-hour expiration code. So you know, again, it's like somebody's listening, so you know, that's, that's a, good. That's, that's an improvement, but I don't know what you do if you, don't, you can't log in. But that's... Well, you just guess. I don't know my PIN code. Maybe that's why I, they have the guess. <laughs> well, we know this doesn't work if you can't log in. So uh, oh. bizarre. Mark McSweeney, Concord, New Hampshire, shares his poor man's VPN solution with us. He says, Steve, I'm a regular listener of Security Now. I have a question about the security of what I'm calling my poor man's VPN. I have a Linux firewall router set up at home. It has a SSH server running in it on an alternate port, not the standard port 22. What I do when I'm away from my home network is to use an SSH client to log on to my SSH server using a public-private key pair for authentication and uh, set up a tunnel dynamically forwarding port 1080. I then configure my browser to use a SOX proxy to use localhost 1080. I've checked the IP address that's being reported using whatismyip.com and the remote address is displayed. Is this method as secure as an IPsec or SSL VPN? Your comments and feedback would be appreciated. Keep up the great work with security now. I immensely enjoy the show and learn a little bit every week. Although some of the topics, such as the recent show dealing with HMAC, do sometimes make my hair hurt. So I need to listen to them a couple of times to really grasp what is being discussed. Hey, this sounds so, like a very clever SSH tunnel. Very clever way to do this. Yes, and it is. It's. I would say it's every bit as secure as an SSL VPN. Um, it is. It's using a a prearranged public-private key pair. So the client, which is out roaming around, is authenticating itself in a very secure fashion to the server. I loved it that that Mark is not running his SSH server on the default SSH listening port. Does that make a difference? You know, because I figure if somebody's trying to find it, they just ping until they get an SSH response. They try all the ports. Um. Yeah, but that's that's okay. more work. Well, and what and the typical attack is not scanning and a single IP across all of its sixty five thousand five hundred thirty five right. ports. Right. The typical attack is scanning all the IPs for something listening on port twenty two. Right. right. So 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 the idea. I mean, I so to answer your question, absolutely yes. Okay. The fact that he the fact that he moved to an alternate port. You know, he didn't tell us. We don't want to know. But it's something between one and six five five three five. Um. So, you know, so his server is listening there and and only he knows where that is. It's true. Somebody could find it. But you really it's just better not to be answering, not to be running the service on the default port. Yeah. Yeah. So so then what he's doing is the way his his SSH client works is that it when he runs it, it opens and listens on port 1080 of, for example, his laptop out roaming around. So we've got the client side. He makes he makes a connection to his SSH server at home. The client side opens and listens for any connections to the local machine, that is the laptop's port 1080. He then configures his browser. Instead of 
um, instead of going out over the internet, he he sets up a this the the Sox proxy in his browser to instead use localhost, meaning the own machine's IP port 1080. So the browser connects to port 1080, which the SSH client is sitting in there listening for connections on. And of course, only the browser there is able to is able to connect. So that allows that gives the browser a connection across SSH, which has been securely authenticated and is encrypted um, using standard um, TLS, which is SSL technology. That gets him to his remote location, where the traffic then comes out of the SSH server and goes out over the internet. So he has come up with, you know, it's a little clunky to configure. It's not a general purpose, complete solution because it, it's only useful for things that you can get to proxy through SSH. Browsers are perfect for it. So surfing the web is, is perfect, but it's, it's absolutely secure and, uh, and it'll work well. It's yeah, that's something called SSH tunneling and you can get others, other uh, things to use the SSH tunnel too. I mean, the yep. browser's a little easier than maybe other things but th- this is a this is actually a fairly he didn't invent this it's no, fairly, no, no. fairly well-known way of uh, of doing this and uh, yep, yeah but i just wanted to, to describe in detail to our listeners how ssh yeah, tunneling works it's a, it's a great idea <laughs> i keep thinking i'm going to set this up i never get around to it but yeah jeff jeff harman uh, says he can't get his uh, 16-bit software to go anymore Thanks for the great security podcast. I'm a software architect responsible for the internet banking application of a mid-sized bank. Keeps me up to date on the current security threats and vectors of attack. That's great, Jeff. We're glad you listen. I consider myself to be pretty technical, and I love it when you dive deep into the bits and bytes. Occasionally, I have the netcast playing while driving with my wife in the car. She laughs at me as I am finishing Steve's sentences or answering the questions Leo asks. She thinks we're all nuts. Keep it coming. <laughs> My question has nothing to do with Internet security, however, more of a problem that just kills me. I haven't been able to solve it so far. I've been having trouble with this for months now, ever since installing Service Pack 3 on my XP machines. I have a number of old 16-bit children's games that worked fine prior to Service Pack 3, but no longer load or install. The installation starts but hangs partway through with the wow.exe process taking up a significant amount of CPU. I've tried letting that process run overnight to see if it ever finishes, but none of that seems to matter. I believe the wow.exe process is what makes it so that a 16-bit program can run on 32-bit XP. Is there something that changed with Service Pack 3 that made it so that these 16-bit games can no longer run? Is there some kind of of security issue? Is there a setting that can be changed to allow this? I wouldn't do that on all of my machines, only on the machines for my children. But he would like to run those games. Do you know about that? What is that wow.exe? Wow stands for Windows on Windows. And it is Microsoft's technology for essentially hosting an incompatible version of Windows on a different version of Windows. There was something like it back in the old days. Remember when we had Windows 3.1 and then there was Win32S? Yeah. Um, That was sort of a... That was a introduction to the 32-bit API that that Microsoft was right, in the process right. of bringing us over on NT, and so it was sort of a straddling technology. The, the, this Wow XE process is essentially it's the 16-bit Windows 
API um, uh, that is that is then hosted on our 32-bit platforms. Um, I, I checked when I saw his note, because I've still got some 16-bit stuff, and I was able to run it on a machine both with Service Pack 2, because like the one I'm sitting in front of right now, I'm, I tried to give it Service Pack 3, and it choked on it, so I, I backed out of that quickly. But I do have a Service Pack 3 machine that, in my case, does run this 16-bit software. The reason I brought up the question, though, is that what we're seeing is we're seeing Microsoft finally beginning to say, okay, we're no longer going to support this really, really old stuff. As I remember, and, and you and Paul may have discussed this, but doesn't Windows 7 formally drop support for 16-bit software? You know, I don't know. That would make sense. They still support 32, of course. Yeah, uh, I think I remember. But I wouldn't be surprised, yeah. I think I remember seeing that somewhere. So yeah. this is a place where virtual machines are your friend. Because the virt- I think we're going to be seeing more and more virtual machine technology coming to bear where it's necessary to run either different platforms on existing platforms or, in some cases, really old software. I was just yesterday, uh, I, I got a, a copy of um, Fusion, VMware Fusion, uh, running on my Mac notebook mm-hmm. because... I really want to use my DOS, my 16-bit DOS editor brief over on my Mac. Um, and I need to use the Mac because <laughs> that's where the PD, that really cool PDP-8 mini computer simulator is, is on the Mac. Right. And, but I don't want to use the Mac editor. I want to use mine. So I've got, you know, Fusion running and I literally have the 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 DOS from Windows ninety five or nine nine ninety eight, uh, you know four point, but that that that, that thing that ended in dot two 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 two, which is sort of the classic <laughs> last version 6. of DOS six point two two, I think, wasn't it? Yep. Uh, well, there, there was DOS six point two two, but then there was they they carried it on. There was Windows ninety five and ninety eight, and then Millennium. And but that the, the, there is the DOS underneath Windows ninety eight because remember those still actually booted DOS and then ran a an environment on top of the the operating system so you could either you know boot to MS DOS or you could you know boot from them back into MS DOS anyway the point is that I'm you know I've got uh, I'm, I'm using virtual machine technology to to host an a a foreign operating system and so. It doesn't sound like this is a big problem for Jeff. I mean, he's, it sounds like he's wanting to figure out what's gone wrong and why. I couldn't find anything on the net that said that SP3 killed 16-bit software. And I did verify that in at least one case, um, I'm still able to run 16-bit software under SP3. Or that would be a real problem for me because I'm, you know, a dinosaur <laughs> still running DOS apps. Um, but virtualization technology is something to keep in mind because it's not expensive and it's it's really become very robust and reliable yeah yeah i think it's probably something corrupted when he installed sp3 but uh you know i haven't heard the same thing that you can't i haven't heard that problem but you're right Right. this is where this is where virtual machines are wonderful wonderful solution they'll solve they'll certainly solve that problem for him because he could easily install a vm and then put whatever version of Windows he wants to on that just for the kids' games. Yeah. Larry in Minnesota scratching his head about open hotspot Wi-Fi security. He says, I hate to beat a dead horse, 
and I'm a little confused about the whole cyber cafe scenario. In an early episode, if my memory serves me, you had indicated that a personal, uh, the personal HTTPS, secure HTTP transactions, like banking in the workplace, could be subject to a variant of an MIM, man in the middle, attack by your employer since they control traffic between your PC and their outward-facing IP. Couldn't the same be said of public Wi-Fi access points? Couldn't Coffee R Us or a disgruntled out-of-work techie who just took the crumbly coffee shop job to get his wife off his back or an evildoer that realized they're using default admin settings in the router do the same thing, a man-in-the-middle attack? How could HTTPS, VPN, or for that matter, any reasonable solution protect you from this? Have I missed something? Um, well, it's a great question yeah. because we ha- we, we've, we've talked about, we sort of talked about this in all kinds of different ways. Um, so I just wanted to, ass- to reassure Larry that without explicit configuration of his client, that is of his laptop, for example, in an open hotspot Wi-Fi scenario, there, there is no way to perform a man in the middle attack on SSL. I mean, that's the whole point of SSL. And this gets blurred, and the reason for this confusion is in a corporate environment, there are companies that want to perform content filtering on all traffic, including SSL. And I remember I had an extensive conversation with a company at last year's RSA conference who was offering this. And I you know, said, so you're installing certificates in all of the machines in the enterprise. And he said, yes, that's the technology we use. So what that means is that, that instead of you accepting the remote server's SSL certificate, you're creating the SSL connection with your employers or the corporate gateway. Then it's decrypting that little hop of security doing content filtering and then it's working with the a regular SSL connection to the remote server so that is classic man in the middle quote attack unquote it's not an attack because this is something by policy that the 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 corporation has established and and your system is cooperating because you have the corporate certificate which allows the corporation essentially access to um, your connection by by virtue of of it not your connection is not going direct to the remote server it's only going to the to the corporate gateway where it's decrypted thanks to the fact that that the corporate gateway has has previously provided you your client in the corporation with that certificate so because that scenario is not the case when you're roaming around in an open hotspot you will have a direct connection to the remote server and ssl will protect you it's only where by corporate mandate they want access to all um even encrypted connections that that your client gets a certificate that allows that to happen all right Let's see here. Um, Paul Kutcher from Ellicott uh, City, Maryland, offers a great example of hysteresis. (laughs) This all started because I was reading the definition of hysteresis 
from uh, this radio television electronics dictionary that Dane gave me. And uh, you you came up with a, a definition having to do with a button press. Yep. <clears throat> he says, hi, Steve, I've been listening to your latest exploration of hysteresis, the nature of a keyboard snap action. I think I have an even simpler example with your home's thermostat. When the temperature rises beyond the set temperature of the thermostat, the heater turns off. When the heat begins to escape your home and the temperature begins to fall, the heater does not come back on immediately after it reaches the set temperature. Otherwise, it would be constantly switching on and off. Instead, the temperature decreases to a lower threshold, whereby it then begins to increase until it shuts off again. Hysteresis allows the heater to turn off and on at a minimal interval without constantly switching off and on while it tries to converge on the target temperature. Of course, it I thought has that to do was that. that's good. Yeah, I thought that was another great example. I don't know if any of us. If, if any of our listeners are as curious about mechanical things as I, but I I've, was fascinated when I took the cover off of many different thermostats. It's not that I go around taking the covers off of thermostats, but I'm for some reason I seem to have seen a lot of thermostats in my time. And and maybe, maybe you've seen this, Leo. There's a in in some models of thermostat, there's a coil spring and a mercury switch. That is a glass capsule with, you know, liquid metal mercury in it and two electrodes at one end. Right. So that when the capsule is tilted toward the electrodes, the circuit is completed by the mercury. When it's tilted toward the other end, the, the, the mercury leaves the electrodes and opens a circuit. And what's clever about this is it implements hysteresis using the movement of the mercury. That is, as the temperature increases... The, that coiled spring is actually a bimetallic um, spring. It's, it's two dissimilar metals with different coefficients of expansion on the in, inner and the outer sides of that coil. So as the temperature changes, the outer one, for example, expanding more will, for, will, will cause this coil to wind itself tighter. So the outside begins to pull the, the mercury switch over center. And at some point, it's just enough the mercury rolls to the other side. Well, in the process, it changes the balance. Now, it's like the, 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 the thing has switched itself on, and it's going to stay there. It's got to go much further back now in order to compensate for the fact that the mercury is over on one side to roll it back on the other. And so the result is hysteresis with a really simple you know, very sort of physically obvious technology. I just, you know, thought it was very clever. We got a letter from uh, Alan Malventano, who is a, um, a, 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 a computer security guy in the Navy who has done some stuff for us. He's actually reviews uh, solid state drives for PCV perspective. He says he has another definition. He says hysteresis. Now, this is the this is kind of the the more the radio definition. Hysteresis is the tendency of a ferrous metal to retain some of its magnetism. It comes into play in electronics and radio gear, mostly by the use of transformers. Hysteresis is the major contributor to any power loss or signal loss to uh, those passing through a transformer because of the residual magnetism of the core is always lagging behind the field induced by the transformer's primary winding. The constant realignment of the particles within the material causes the lost power to be given off as heat. That's hysteresis loss. So that's another <laughs> much cool. less intuitive explanation. 
<laughs> Thank you for that, Leo. He's, he says it takes uh, work for the metal to change poles, and that work eats up some of the signal efficiency of the system. Yep. And that's what makes unused wall warts warm to the touch. Did you know that? Yeah, exactly. Actually, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they've, they've got transformers in them, and They're the transformers are sitting there transforming, working, whether working. you need them or not. Yep. That's why we unplug from the wall now, even if we're not charging. Glenn yep. Edward in Nottingham, Maryland, actually, especially when we're not charging, is even AES and PGP secure? I wonder, queries Glenn. After reading stories like the one referenced below, I have to wonder if any data encryption algorithm that's allowed to see the light of day hasn't been compromised. What do you think after reading this? Some of this was covered in my local newspaper a few years ago, mediafilter.org slash CAQ slash Cryptogate. Well, um, his link refers to a story that you may have heard about. It was in the news, as, as he mentioned a few years ago, um, where where somebody was was uh, grabbed by, I think it was officials in Iran and accused of, it, it was a Swiss official accused of, of um, planting deliberately compromised with a backdoor crypto machines uh, that came from a, a, a high, highly reputable company. Crypto AG was the name of the company. And, um, and I don't remember now one way or the other, whether it was ever proven, but you know, the, the, the accusation was that the NSA was working secretly with crypto AG to install cryptographic backdoors in their equipment. And, and that allowed the NSA to, you know, obviously decrypt otherwise unbreakable codes. Um, the reason I bring this up is that this is a perfect example of the difference between technology and implementation that is in, in in you know in Glenn citing this example asking is even AES and PGP secure well this is not it never was the the fault of the underlying cryptographic algorithm that was the problem it was implementation details it was the fact that you know there was the algorithm was being misused or abused or something about the 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 system that employed the algorithm was was deliberately being made insecure if this is even true i don't know whether this is an urban legend or true or not but that's not really the the, the issue i wanted to draw the, a clear distinction between the idea of of the algorithmic strength versus the application strength and actually leo this sort of goes to your point of of liking open source software because it helps to bring visibility to the implementation right. and it makes it much easier for people to, to look at the code and go, oh, this was done right. So we know we have both a really strong algorithm and a really strong implementation of the algorithm. Right. And right. those are two very different things. Yes, as we've learned. Yep. Taz in Nova Scotia has some relief from PayPal concerns just in the nick of time. He says, Stephen Lee, I'm a little behind on listening to security now. Due to being busy at work, I'm catching up. I've listened to SN182, and I have a little info for the PayPal football and security question dilemma. If you log on to PayPal and go to my account, then edit profile down at the bottom of the account information column, there is something called identification preferences. The webpage the link points to says, when you call customer service, we will ask you to confirm your identity 
by providing your primary phone number and one other piece of information. Please let us know what you would like to use for your other form of ID. The choices are customer service PIN, your social security number, the last four digits of the primary bank account number, the last four digits of the primary credit card number. Choice one lets you create your own six-digit, numbers-only PIN. The default setting, uh, I guess, it certainly uh, was mine. It was the bank account number. If only I had a credit card registered, I'm guessing it would have been the default. It seems to me, just guessing here, that if Brian and Raleigh, the guy that wrote in it at the end of 182, had set up his own unique PIN, the customer service would ask him for that instead of the last four number of his, of his numbers of his credit card. If that's the case, well, everybody should be going there and fixing that. And Leo, it is. I oh. didn't know about it. I went oh. there, and it's going there. there right now. Yes, uh, it's exactly where he said. You go, you you log into PayPal, you know, and if you can't, you just guess, and it'll you know, let, <laughs> let you in anyway. Um, go to my account, and then there's a little edit profile link. You choose that, then there's three columns of data. The left-hand column is called account information. The bottom of that is identification preferences. And sure enough, I mean, I had never been there before, and mine was defaulted like everybody else's is to, I, don't, I think it was the last four digits of my bank account number. Mm-hmm. Either that or it was my credit card. I don't remember which. But And the, the option for customer service PIN was grayed out, non-selectable, but over on the right was a link to create one. Ah. And, and it literally, it, uh, so I went there, and it says uh, there's two fields that look like password fields, and it says make up six digits. And so I did that and put them in twice and I said, good, we got your your own self-assigned pin. And uh, then I went back to the prior page and selected it as my as my identification as my identifier. So it is I will no longer be using or asked for, hopefully, my bank account number, credit card number. And I wanted to provide this thank you, Taz in Nova Scotia. This is a fantastic tip for all of our listeners who are our PayPal users. I'm logging uh, in I, right now. That's great. Yeah, yeah. It is just, it's an absolute way of increasing PayPal security. And Lord knows after what we've heard today, uh, we, we need all the PayPal security we can get. Just guess. Just guess. <laughs> oh, a little too high. Guess lower. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, sorry. Renee Ann from Birmingham, Alabama, describes herself as one of our few female listeners. We don't know that. But I think you might be right. Dear Steve, I'm so glad to hear about the hands-on how-to episodes you're planning. I'm embarrassed to ask what is probably a really dumb question. But here goes. In passing, you and Leo often make mention of uh, making an ISO image of your computer. When I, uh, I back up my data regularly, I don't have a clue as to how to make an ISO image. Could you discuss this either in listener feedback or as part of a how-to episode? What's the best software to use to do this? And please talk about the smallest details of how to do this. Perhaps you, perhaps you could give us a recommended checklist. Delete old files, defrag, whatever. Profit. Thank you. A devoted female listener, Renee Ann in Birmingham, Alabama. Well, um, my favorite imaging tool has changed. Oh, um, I, I was, I've been telling everybody drive snapshot. Yep. And it had been until... I, I was updating my copy of my favorite boot manager, which is Booted NG. Uh, this is made by a guy named Paul Terrell, who I think is in Nevada, if I if I remember right. And he's got something called Image for Windows. And 
I like it better because it will image to NTFS partitions, oh. whereas Drive Snapshot is is a DOS-based tool. This thing is no OS-based, so you actually boot it itself. He will he will create a boot floppy or a boot CD for you, sort of very much the way I do with, with Spinrite, where you don't need to provide it with an operating system. It solves that problem for you. Um, and it understands natively Firewire and USB, so you're able to use those. Whereas if you boot DOS, you have to have additional drivers, which are, uh, unless your OS or your, your BIOS provides recognition for, for those. Anyway, it's a little more flexible. Um, it's not as easy to use. The UI is a is sort of text screen based, um, whereas Drive Snapshot is a little bit easier over on the Windows side. But um, I do like it, and I've I've been using it and recommending it to friends that ask me the the question. How much is so Booted NG? Uh, Booted NG is thirty four ninety five. Okay, so it's about it's, the same price, but you get this boot manager too. Um. Uh, well, actually, they're separate. Bo- bo- uh, booted NG is thirty four ninety five. Oh, okay. Um, the image for Windows is thirty eight ninety four. I don't know where that number came from, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> they have image image for DOS and Linux too. Okay, that's cool. Yeah, yeah. It, it's I mean, it's really nice stuff. It it works well. The guy knows his way around um, imaging and low level stuff. Um, you know, booted NG is well known among our listeners, I'm sure. Cause it's my, it's been my favorite boot manager for quite a while. Um, and it, it, it itself does some imaging, but not as flexibly as his, his standalone imaging tool. But to answer Renee's, uh, Renee Ann's question, um, we, those don't make ISO. Um, uh, when we talk about a, a drive image, we're not talking about a CD or DVD image, which are technically and, and typically ISO images. That's a sort of a different kind of image. That that's an image of a CD or a DVD. In this case, it's it's a it's a drive image, which is a file or multiple files. Sometimes you break them up into smaller pieces if if you're like using a fat file system that can't manage a multi gig file. It'll it'll create a a a, a series of smaller chunks. Um, and I do find myself, I actually, I was setting up a new machine to try using, uh, Skype under windows, uh, for this, um, e- episode of security now with Leo. And, um, after I got it all set up, I made an image. And so I do the things that you would do if you're about to sort of like make a, something you care about, like, like, you know, a, a take a snapshot of, of your drive, which is delete all your temporary files from your browser. Um, under Windows, there's always a tool under system cleanup called cleanup. And you can check, pr- normally check all the boxes for the types of things you want to clean up. So I run a cleanup and it'll, it'll find and discard a whole bunch of stuff and also offer to compress files that haven't been used for a long time to sort of keep them in a smaller storage form. Um, then after all that, that is after deleting all the stuff, oh, also empty your trash. If, if you use trash and have a trash can, then, you know, basically get rid of all the junk that you really don't need to keep around. Maybe you look at your desktop and delete, you know, take that opportunity to do a little bit of spring cleaning. And then finally do a defrag to sort of get everything in nice shape and then take an image of that. Um, which is the that's sort of the routine I go through whenever I'm doing an image, sort of get things 
ship shape before you take a snapshot and then uh, and use a program like Drive Snapshot, um, which I really recommend for less um, high end users or this uh, this image for um, Windows uh, DOS or Linux from from Paul Terrell. He's at Terabyte, by the way, T-E-R-A-B-Y-T-E. And uh, I recommend his stuff without without hesitation. Good. Well, now I have another uh, imaging program to buy. <laughs> it's a good I've, one. I've been using Drive Snapshot. I'm very happy with it. But uh, yep. this looks like it might be a little easier uh, to um, to uh, rest- restore from. I mean, the big issue is yes. creating this boot disk to, to restore from. Yes. And this looks and, like and it might be easier to do. That's exactly the case, Leo. Yeah. yeah. Um, our last question. Hard to believe. Rafaela Mediavia in San Juan, Puerto Rico says, Steve, one simple question. Why aren't you on Twitter? Man, I thought we were going to have one show in this whole darn network that we don't mention Twitter. <laughs> no. Nope. Well, I'm going to sort of help you with that, Leo. Oh, good. Uh, wh- what is Twitter? <laughs> I have no idea. I can't imagine what he'd be talking about. <laughs> I'm I'm assembly code, and it is fundamentally incompatible with Twitter. I don't know what Twitter is. I don't want to know what Good. Twitter is. I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> I don't care what Twitter is. I know that I'm the only one left on the planet who who doesn't know what it is, but that's just fine with Twitter me. Twitter grew in the last year at a rate of 1,300 uh, 20%. And now we have tweeting, whatever tweeting is. Is tweeting the act of twittering yes, or is that something yes. different? Yeah, instead of saying oh, twittering, okay. you say tweeting. Uh, and, your, and your post is a tweet. Yeah, and don't you say like things, oh, I just walked in the front door or gee, you know. Well, you could say a variety. I don't want to get saw this the strangest. I saw the strangest looking cloud just now. Yeah, know, you could tweet cares? that. But you don't have to tweet that. You could also say, I've learned of a new technique for cracking, you know, AES. See this link. I mean, it, it can, it's who you follow really determines what kind of stuff you're going to read. You don't have to follow Just people say, I push, looked at the sky. Push away from the computer, Leo. <laughs> Step back slowly and carefully. I have, uh, I've uh, tweeted uh, a lot less lately. I'm kind of, I'm kind of, uh, I'm, I'm on the, on the is de- there an exponential decay curve uh, in, in tweeting? Some people no. tweet. It's an exponential explosion, exponential explosion uh, curve, unfortunately. Uh, so maybe this is what everyone's doing when I'm seeing them all doing something in in the On restaurant. Your, yeah, you see everybody them, in yes, the restaurant is like, tweeting. you know, bent over their yes. little PDA pushing buttons. And I'm thinking, okay, what the heck are you doing? They're, well, they're that's tweeting. That's almost certainly what they're doing. There's this weird guy across the restaurant staring at me and, yep. you know, that's me. <laughs> yeah. Rickster just said, Steve Gibson just became my favorite person on the Twit Network. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, no. I don't have Facebook. I don't have MySpace. I don't have any of that teenager stuff. I don't have any twit tweet or anything else. Exactly, I don't. Yeah. I'm happy to do security now, and that's it. That's my exposure. That's it. It it wasn't easy getting you to do that. No, I when you first suggested it, I was groaning, thinking, Oh what is what is this now that no, Leo's come up? This Turns out the best thing best thing that ever happened, Good. Leo. So I'm glad thank to you. say that. Well we're very grateful to you because we learn a lot every single week. You could find uh, of course the show notes and uh, transcriptions and sixteen kilobit versions of all of this at grc.com. And if you'd like to ask a question, we do these uh, Q and A uh, episodes every other show. Uh, you can go to grc.com slash feedback and uh, leave, a, leave a question. Yeah, Steve likes those questions. Um, 
And of course, when you're at GRC, the Gibson Research Corporation, pick yourself up a copy of Spinrite, the world's best disc maintenance and recovery utility. It's a must-have. Or, or get four if you want a site license, then you can use Is that it on how that all. Works? Yep. So if you buy as many as four, then you're done. You've got it. You can install it now in all the systems in your office. Yep, exactly. Uh, in a single site, we, we use 10 copies if you want a corporate-wide multi-site ah, capability okay. and 20 for global. Perfect. So, and and I, I just liked it because it allows someone to try it and see if it does the thing for them. Then right. they don't have to say, hey, I already bought one, one. copy or right. I bought Spinrite. You know, what's the site license plan? It's like, okay, wait a minute. Just, you know, if we make it incremental and, and that way, similarly, um, when there's an, an increase they can upgrade by upgrading that set of spin rights. So it just sort of all scales properly. I just, I liked it. I thought it you know, solved the problem nicely. I think that's, a, yeah, it's very clever. All right, Steve, we're out of time, my friend. But Oh, uh, boy, are we. <laughs> long episode, but full of good stuff. Yep. Great to talk to you, Leo, and we'll do it next week. On Security Now. Security Now.